Welcome back to Word and Table, a bi-weekly podcast on liturgy, sacrament, and the great tradition of Christian worship and why it is vital in our world today. I'm your host, Alex Wilgus, and I am here, as usual, with Father Stephen Gauthier. Welcome back, Father Stephen. Good to be back, Alex. Father Stephen is the Director of Formation at St. Paul's House of Formation in the Greenhouse Movement, and he is Canon Theologian of the Diocese of the Upper Midwest in the Anglican Church in North America. Uh, and today, Father Stephen, um, we're going to do a mailbag episode. We've been getting, oh, okay. uh, we've answered questions here and there um, from people. They've been jumping off points for uh, great, you know, topical episodes. But today, I wanted to just uh, compile three questions, and we'll make our entire episode about it, out of that. How does that sound? Sounds good. Great. Our first one is from Micah, um, and he's following up on our episode on confirmation. Remember um, if th- that sort of special uh, prayer, quickening the Holy Spirit. Uh, in people's lives. And his question is basically, uh, Alex and Father Stephen, um, I enjoyed your episode on confirmation very much, but I have friends who've talked about how confirmation just simply means becoming Anglican. Does Is that included in the definition of confirmation? Does it mean becoming Anglican? Well, that's... Um, I would... Let me use an example, which I think might might help. Uh, again, we emphasize as Anglicans that we're part of the one Catholic Church. We're a piece of the one Catholic Church. We don't have the whole of it. And it's sort of like being a citizen of the United States. We have 50 states. And to be a citizen, one of our, our greatest rights is the right to vote. But to vote, you actually have to be connected in an actual community. There are no generic voters. Mm-hmm. If I want to vote in a presidential election, I have to be a citizen somewhere. I have to you know, be resident somewhere and vote in the place where I'm legally resident. I have to connect. So I can't be as, as a practical matter. I'm an American in all 50 states. But I can't, you know, I have to be to fully exercise my civic rights as an American. I have to be embedded somewhere. I can choose which one it is, but I have to be embedded somewhere. Mm-hmm. So at that point, confirmation in the historic church, the idea we're connected to you know, the church's visible presence of the bishop. And, you know, that we're connected with the bishops. And so to, you know, to, to connect with that, that bishop is, you know, in our case, it means you're connected specifically. It's like, you know, I'm a voter in Wheaton, Illinois. You know, I'm a citizen of Illinois and of Wheaton, et cetera. If I move somewhere else, I'd be a citizen somewhere else. Yeah. But I can't be an American without being connected. So confirmation is almost like registering to vote in a sense. I'm connecting to a real community, that, that, that network of bishops, of Anglican bishops, by virtue of simply, that's where I'm hooked into the church. Got it. Okay. So, so it is, you know, becoming Anglican in the sense that you're yes. plugging into your, to your local congregation. But it's not, a, it's not an oppositional uh, type of thing. You I know, see. I'm, I'm not a non-Ohioan type of thing or something. You know, I'm just, I, this is where I'm <laughs> plugged into the United States is in my locale. This is where I'm plugged into it. Okay. All right. So the answer is yes, in a way. <laughs> well, wherever you're confirmed, you're going to be part of that particular community is where your mm-hmm. connection is to the, to the one Catholic Church. Okay. It's a point of where your point of connection to the Catholic Church is. So through us, if you're being confirmed as an Anglican, we're your point of connection, the bishop who's confirming you. Yeah. You know, because your point of connection. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, hope that helps, Micah. Thank you so much for your, your uh, question. Our second one is from Alyssa. Uh, she's following up on our episode about divorce and remarriage. Um, and her question was, um, does the church allow married couples to live separately? Um, and maybe another way of putting that question uh, is, the, how does the church regard uh, legal divorce? We made the 
we made the point that legal divorce doesn't really have anything to say about whether a sacramental marriage is there or not. Um, so what, how, does, the, does the church recognize the ability of married couples to live apart for any reason? I'm grateful for that question. That brings me very useful clarification. Is in no way is with the church be encouraging people to live in abusive situations and things. Uh, these come up. And so what we're, we have to separate between a troubled marriage that is still a marriage and the practicalities of how do we look at the best interests of both partners, our goal being to fix the marriage, if, if we're talking about a marriage. Uh, and as a practical matter, that certainly can involve, you know, the uh, involving separation for the benefit of the marriage, mm-hmm. let alone for the protection of partners. And it can even involve civil divorce. Because we don't think that would actually end the marriage from a religious point of view, but sometimes that's necessary for property reasons. Okay. A husband has a gambling problem. He's gambling away the kids' college funds. Right, <laughs> Type right, of thing. Right. Sometimes the only way to protect the, the family's financial security is to take legal action. But the point is the legal action itself wouldn't change the, the, uh, the spiritual situation of marriage. So again, again, certainly what we're talking about is saying we, we want to do everything to keep marriages together and work them out and work them through hard times. Mm-hmm. But never would that be a situation of actually keeping someone in a profoundly abusive or dangerous situation, someone or you know, spouse or their children. Yeah, okay. All right, that is, yeah, that is a, a, a helpful clarification. And we actually do work with couples. That's happened, I know, in, in, the, in the cathedral parish where I serve. Uh, we've had that real situation occur yeah where somebody really had to had been in a situation involved in, uh you know abuse where we certainly the person had to be protected yeah it would be if we could do something that could solve it but certainly the person has to be protected got it got that's it. a separate issue again working through a marital problem as opposed to saying well i guess there's no marriage okay yeah 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 i see so yeah so sometimes sadly living apart or rec- or civil divorces are necessary to protect one or another partner from an abusive situation. I've even seen you use this part of healing of a marriage, you know, in a particular sign where there's a pattern of abuse. I've actually seen um, in, in pastoral work where a couple temporarily with the church's encouragement and support for both partners separated, got professional assistance that actually allowed them to happily get back together. Okay. It I was see. part of a mending process. Okay. I see. So well, that's, that, that is a helpful clarification. Thank you very much, Alyssa. Um, and our last question is from uh, Seth, who uh, this, this maybe is a big one, uh, but he says, uh, what would it take to be reunited with the Roman Catholic Church? Um, and also, what would it take for Anglicans to be reunited with other Protestant denominations? So like if we say that we're you know, both Reformed and Catholic, then what's our vision for, for how could we be reunited with people on both sides from that divide? Well, happily there, I can tell you that we've taken some... I said one of the things about being an Anglican is we have a special relationship to ecumenism. Never have we considered ourselves the one true church. We've considered ourselves part of the one true church. And we've had the zeal of wanting, as Archbishop Ramsey, I love quoting him, said, you know, we're the child of divorce. Our dream is for our parents to get back together. So uh, in the 19th century, uh, we actually developed... Um, uh, we actually developed a, um, a, some guidelines of what it would take for us to actually, trying to actually affect reunion mm-hmm. on a local level, what it would take for us to reunite, you know, with specific groups of Christians in the church. And we came up with something that came to be known as the Lambeth Quadrilateral. Lambeth is from Lambeth Palace, where the Archbishop of Canterbury lives. 
And, uh, you know, quadrilateral had four elements. We said, you know, we said we were both truly Catholic and truly Reformed. And we believe these are the four central elements that for us would be necessary to make sure that every union wasn't lowest common denominator, was insisting we were keeping that dynamic tension to the fullness yeah. of, of those four elements. The first one is the, uh, the, the, the sufficiency and the authority of Scripture. Scripture is the ultimate authority, and it's sufficient. Everything necessary for salvation is contained in Scripture. So, for example, one of our problems with reunion with Rome uh, would be a, is our special notion that, for example, dogmatically, uh, the Roman Church requires as a matter of belief to be a Christian certain articles of faith which would not meet our test of being clearly taught in the, in the scriptures. For example, the assumption of Mary that her body was raised to heaven is a dogmatic definition of the Roman Church. You cannot become a Roman Catholic without believing that. We say it's not taught in scripture. Yeah. And so we could never, we, so we, that's one of the, that would be something that would, that would stop us there. One might, in good faith, believe it, but it can't be a requirement. Right, it cannot be a requirement that the scripture, first of all, the scripture is the ultimate determinant of what faith is, and we can never require anything as necessary for salvation that is not plainly taught in scripture, clearly okay. taught in scripture. Uh, the second thing uh, we have is, again, scripture, we had an episode recently on Vincent of, of Lerin, or Lerin's, and uh, Vincent made, made the point is, you know, the scriptures are sufficient and more than sufficient. However, the problem is human beings have ability sometimes to interpret almost anything. Mm-hmm. You know, so how do we know a true interpretation? And so a practical application is we look upon the historic creeds, specifically the Apostles' Creed, the traditional baptismal creed of the Western Church, and the Nicene Creed, which is the combination creed of the Council of Nicaea and the Council of First Constantinople that we recite on Sunday in our liturgy, that those are, those are, that tells how the church has understood the message of the New Testament. Yeah. That's non-negotiable, that that is an authentic interpretation of what the New Testament, what does the New Testament say about God? The Father, he's the Almighty, he's the maker of heaven and earth. What about Jesus? You know, all those things we say in our creed, that those are, those are not debatable. That, that is the fair, that is the true interpretation. The church is, how the church has read the scriptures. So someone said, well, Jesus is really God. No, he's God from God, light from light, true God from true God. Because the church reads it that way. We believe that's what the scriptures teach. Mm-hmm. We believe that's what's plainly taught in scripture. A third is the, the, we talk about the sacramental life of the church is really important. And specifically, you know, Jesus mandated, he said, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yeah. Uh, he said of, you know, this is my body, this is my body, do this in remembrance of me. These were commands of Jesus. And he says, unless you're born again of water and the Spirit, you know, unless you eat my, the, the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood. So he talked about these as being requirements. So we believe in the two, what we call the dominical sacraments, the sacraments of the Lord, the gospel sacraments of baptism and Eucharist. Yeah. There are some traditions that do not have those. You know, we thought that sacraments were divisive. Yeah. And, uh, you no, know, we think that this is clearly taught as commanded by Jesus and declared necessary for all, uh, you know, normative. And so mm-hmm. that's an essential part we, that always has to be there. And the fourth is we believe in the church, and that's, that shows that as the historic episcopate. You mm-hmm. know, the, the, the church is organized around... You know, now we accept that that can take different forms, what that looks like in different cultures, but it's always the historic, you know, the bishops, you know, across time and across space. The apostolic authority. The, the apostolic authority, that the church 
is not scattered groups of fan, Jesus fan clubs. Yeah, that it is, yeah. It's his, his body, and it exists over time and across space. In, it has a real presence in the form of the church. Okay. So I guess, okay, so these four things, the, um, the, the scriptures as containing everything necessary for salvation, the creeds, um, the sacraments, and uh, the apostolic of, of baptism and Eucharist. Baptism and Eucharist, right, um, for sacraments. And, right, the um, basically uh, orders, you know, the, the yeah. episcopate. So if I'd, I'd probably, you know, hazard to say that for for our brothers and sisters on the Protestant side of the aisle, you'd probably be, um, th- this would probably be adding to um, what you practice. Uh, and maybe for our brothers and sisters on the Catholic aisle, it would be these, this is what the, this is what the the faith needs to be limited to to be included in it. Is, is that is that a fair way of putting it? Um, yeah, I think that's probably the general tendency. For example, with a lot of our sister churches, what would happen would be is people, uh, for example, when people join the like in our diocese, we've had non denominational churches become Anglican, uh-huh. but what they're really doing is just entering the the historic one Catholic church. Right. Is what will happen is they will you know be ordained into. The, the ministry, you know, into the into the line with the bishop. Yeah, you know, they'll, be, yeah. they'll simply place themselves in that connection. So we welcome people to join that connection. Yeah, yeah, but it's not. But so, the, the, but really, when we're talking about ecumenism, we're not saying, you know, hey, be Anglican. Here's the oh, no, articles. No, no. We're say, here's these four things that we think define the the universal. Those Catholic were the non negotiables. Yeah, say that we felt we could not be faithful. It's not a matter of this. We just think those are essential things. That would characterize the fullness of what we think the faith needs. You know, those four witnesses. This, you know, that special role very dear to 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 children of the reform of okay. the, the the supremacy of Scripture and its sufficiency. Okay. You know, the that Scripture has to mean something. It's not just a, a Rorschach test. Uh-huh. You know, some uh-huh. people now and today, it's amazing. You know, that it, it has a meaning. Yeah. Our belief about Jesus, who He is, the things that what the Scripture teaches, as we see in the creeds. Yeah. The fact that there really is a church, historic church, is more. It's not just a theoretical thing. It's a, a living body across time and across space. Yeah. And that the church, as you know, that God acts in, you know, in his sacraments. You know, the, the baptism and Eucharist are the means that God has chosen mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. as instruments. Okay, great. So the Lambeth Quadrilateral. The Lambeth Quadrilateral. Is, is what it's called. These four points. Okay, that, that, that is what it would take. Um, great, and that was that was in the nineteenth century, huh? We've we've yes. been we've been uh, we've been beating this horse for a while, haven't we? Oh yes, yes. <laughs> That's great. Um, Again, we really identify. One of the things that helps us, I think, why we're ecumenical that way by nature, is again we say so when somebody comes to the Anglican Church, instead of seeing what's how they differ from us, we always see what we recognize. Yeah. Every, from every tradition, when people come, we recognize when people come from an evangelical, a purely evangelical, we're evangelical, evangelical background, we recognize the love of the Bible, that zeal for souls and evangelism. We're there. Yeah. We recognize, that's us. Yeah. You're speaking our language. And we often bring them more to, to different, under, of the sacraments and the church. Uh-huh. People in a, uh, you know, in a Catholic, we recognize the, 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 the sacraments, the sacramental mm-hmm. life, the importance of church. We're, we're there. Yeah. Apostolic Episcopate, yeah. yeah, yeah. And we have the good news to tell you, boy, the direct connection with the Bible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we bring that excitement of that direct connection uh, with, with the Word of God. Right.
Great. Well, thanks, Seth, for that uh, excellent yes, question. You. And, and thank you to thanks to everyone who's writing in. Please, uh, again, uh, we're, we're taking all questions and we'll probably do two or three more of these uh, mailbag episodes here pretty soon. Um, so keep writing in for your, with your questions and uh, anything else that you'd uh, add to any of those, Father Stephen? No, I think we've covered the bases. Great. Well, uh, thank you so much. And that's all the time that we have left. So thank you for listening to Word and Table. Um, We'll be back in a couple of weeks for more on liturgy, sacrament, and the great tradition of Christian worship. Thanks for listening.